0: All right, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, so glad that you could join us for worship. Always thankful to be able to worship and share God's word with you. Uh, yeah, shout out to our collegians who are not here. Uh, it sounds like they had a successful retreat. I know some of our members helped to go serve, whether as a staffer or as praise team. So always encouraged to see our church just loves on every life stage and every part, and especially we all know the college years are just so pivotal to the faith. And so if you're new or visiting, uh, my name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff. We want to welcome you to our church. As you see, uh, to kick off the year, there's a lot going on so a great time to visit. Uh, Obviously if you're new, Bridge Groups is a great avenue to meet and connect. But also, we are going through a Bible reading plan. We want to be in the Word. This year's particular vision to pray together, the prayer gatherings. There's a lot of things going on and exciting. So if you have any questions at all about anything, definitely stop by the info and welcoming table and we'd love to give you more information. I did want to preview again. Uh, We're closing out a series today and starting next week, if you didn't know our church for the past couple years, uh, beginning of the year, we've been going through the book of Genesis from beginning to end, which we completed. Start Starting next week, we have a new sermon series, actually. I think the graphic should be up there. It's going to be a journey through the book of Exodus. Now, the Exodus book, it's an exciting one. It's one that maybe we know generally, bits and pieces, story of Moses and Egypt. But if not, it's something that we really look forward to going and journeying together as a church through. And so please do join us as we start this new sermon series together. And I think you're getting a taste of it for those who are doing the Bible reading plan. And so that will be that. But for today, like I mentioned, we're going to be finishing a sermon series we've been going through on the topic of prayer. And just to remind you, our church's vision for this year, and hopefully for... Every year that we are in existence is to grow in our understanding and practice of prayer. Uh, not to recap, uh, for those who maybe have forgotten or are just joining us to this series, we've seen the past four weeks, prayer has a variety of different angles, right? If you're curious how we define prayer in just a simple definition, we said prayer basically it's talking to God. So we talked about that in Sermon 1. Hey, it's about talking to God, the living God, who is real and present and hears us today. But it's not just talking about anything or, or random things, but it's also asking him things, right? Scripture's clear. You should make petitions and you should ask God certain things. Ask him questions. Ask him for certain things. But not only that, it's not a one-way conversation. We also learned that there's an element where you're also dialoguing. You're listening. And that might have been the newest or maybe not the most uh, understood for a lot of us, but it is very biblical to be still. Now, we don't go outside the bounds of scripture, obviously, but through the word, through the spirit, we do believe that God answers and and dialogues and responds to his people through the truth. And that how often do we do this? We learned last week, unceasing. This is not just something we do once a month. This is not something we do, and, you know, for five minutes a day. But literally we are breathing in the life of scripture. And so all good things, all different angles. I encourage you to listen to it if you either didn't or you forgot. And all of these are important, but they're all focused on the more personal dimension of prayer. Which is obvious. And that's really good. Nothing wrong with that. We encourage you to bolster and build up your personal prayer life. But today I'm going to argue a personal prayer life is incomplete as a Christian, without the understanding that we are called to not just cultivate a personal prayer life, but a corporate and communal prayer life. In other words, the Bible says we're not supposed to just pray by ourselves, but we're supposed to pray together. So in light of that, if you have your Bibles or your programs, it might be easier because I'm going to go three different texts. We'll turn to our first text in Acts 2.42. And FYI, we'll be looking at... Not only these three, three different texts, but a variety of texts today. I'm not going to just be preaching out of one passage. So I hope to instead give an overview of what the Bible has to say about this topic of communal prayer. So with that being said, if we can all rise together as we read God's word. For here at our church, we believe every time we read God's word, God is present, moving and speaking through it. So Acts 2.42 will be the first text we'll read. This is the reading of God's word. They, being the early church and believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Next Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 30, this is the Lord God speaking, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land, so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. And lastly Ephesians 6:18. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Amen. Reading God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we lift up this time to you. We ask God that this vision to be in prayer can be something that is grounded through your spirit's conviction, through your word. Help us to God be a not only individuals who pray, but a church that corporately prays together with one another and for one another for your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So when I was a senior in college, maybe like some of you, I had the privilege to go on a missions trip. I went on a missions trip to India. And uh, one of the most memorable plane rides was the plane ride back Part of it was because we got to ride Singapore Airlines, which I heard was a really good airline. Not only that, we kind of heard rumors that this was a newer model of the Singapore Airlines, one of the largest, fanciest ones. So obviously after spending a month in India, you're kind of like, I'll take it, right? Sounds like a very nice ride back home to comfort. So we got on there, and I kid you not, about an hour into the flight, uh, you hear the boom, and then the pilot, like, uh, what sounded like a standard announcement. is like, hey, everyone, this is the pilot speaking, and verbatim, this is what he said. No need to worry too much, but one of our engines just stopped working. So we'll have to reroute to Japan to get the plane checked out. End announcement. Now, I don't know about you, I might date myself here. I grew up watching this movie called like, Final Destination. <laughs> okay, so most of you guys know, like, the plane goes down <laughs> in that movie, Okay. And to a normal person's brain, if you have two engines and one engine is not working, that's like imminent death, okay? For those who are uneducated. So either the pilot was lying or we didn't know something. Thankfully, we landed fine. Obviously, I'm here today. And we all looked it up. We Googled it. And if you didn't know, it's actually well-known. All commercial jets, they can fly with just one working engine. Snap effect. They can cruise fine in the air. They can land okay. Every pilot's trained to know how to do that. But the one thing the plane cannot do with just one engine is to take off. No pilot who is sensible would even attempt to take off with only one working engine. Nor do I think any of you would willingly get on a plane if you knew only one engine was working. Is that not right? Could you imagine, boom, hey, one of our engines is not working. We'll give you a $100 discount. Would anyone like to get on this plane with one working engine? Yeah, sure. I don't think so. In other words, a plane with one working engine, it is possible but it is definitely not powerful. Bring this up because imagine the church is a plane. What the book of Acts generally shows us is that the two engines that powered the early church were the word of God and prayer. Now that's not to say these are the only things that matter in the church. There's the fellowship, there's the ordinances, the breaking of bread, but these are arguably the two main pillars. This is why in Acts 6-4, it should be up there, you see that the leaders of the church, they made it a point to not do other things, but it says we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now why? Because these two things were firing the church forward and it helped the church to not only exist or cruise, but to take off. When you read the book of Acts, the church is not a church that's cruising. It is a church that is taking off. Baptisms are happening. People are being saved. Believers are being emboldened. Legitimate gospel work and movement is happening in a church that doesn't just have one, but both engines firing on all cylinders. And in light of that, I'm going to make a general observation and diagnosis. I'm going to argue many churches in our context, including our own, care far more that we are a preaching church than that we are a praying church. How do I know this? Every newcomer or welcoming lunch I go to, if you ask them, what are you looking for and what made you stay? Majority of them will say, preaching. Really like the preaching. Really like the teaching. Rarely do you hear someone say, what I'm really looking for is a praying church. Nor do you hear someone say, I'm going to have a hard time going to that church because I don't think that church really prays. It's not just our church. I think it's the Western church in general. There was a survey given by a reputable Christian company called Barna. They bowled hundreds of lead pastors to determine what is the three main engines or ministry priorities for you. 47% of them said discipleship and spiritual development. That is one of the most important things you should care about. 46% close second said evangelism and outreach. That's what the church is to be about. 35% said preaching. The bottom of the list, prayer. 3% of hundreds and hundreds of lead pastors said only 3% of them said it is a ministry priority. Observing the modern American church, there's an author named James Banks. This is what he says, and I think it's pretty true. He says, there's no greater need in the church today than for Christians to recapture the lost art of praying together. Now I share that because I want to confess as a pastor, member, and leader of this church, this is one of my weakest practices by far. I used to say that as more just like an interesting fact type thing. Oh, yeah, by the way, like I'm a Bible guy. Prayer's been tough. People, oh, yeah, me too. I don't see that as a funny thing anymore. I see that as humbling and rebuking. This sermon series has been doing a number on me, realizing through God's word just how much I fall short of practicing meaningful prayer in my life. It is like a stake through my heart every time I read articles that say the church's prayer culture will only go as far as the leaders because I'm one of them. And now let me ask you and turn it towards you. When was the last time you prayed with someone? Not just in generalities or as an afterthought before you go to sleep, but where you actually prayed with them and for them, with them hearing you pray for them. Or when's the last time you shared something with someone and they said, you know what, I can't do much for you, but I want to pray for you. And they prayed for you right there on the spot. It's probably been a while for a lot of us. If you didn't know, our mission as a church, and we heard recently that not even our own members know our mission. So we're going to work on rebuilding that up. But for whether you're new or tenured, our mission is very straightforward. It is to raise passionate followers of Jesus in all of life. And that is an impossibility if we remain a one-engine church that does not grow and strive to have a culture of praying together. It's an impossibility. Now, just to be clear, I'm not minimizing the role and importance of personal prayer at all, but obviously the focus today is to show personal prayer, it is insufficient in the context of the life of the church, which is called to pray for, care for, and be on mission for far more than just ourselves. So what does it mean? What does it look like? How can we be a church that prays together? Glad you asked. And there's two angles we want to look at this idea of praying together to help us organize it. it should be up there. If generally communal prayer is this idea of praying together, Corporate prayer then is praying with one another. We're gathered together and we are praying with one another. Intercessory prayer is this practice of praying for one another. Now obviously they are closely related and oftentimes they will intersect. But I want to talk about them in their own right so you can understand and kind of wrap your heads around what does it look like to pray together. So first we'll tackle corporate prayer or praying with one another. Shouldn't come as any surprise to any of us that one of the core values of the modern West is individualism. Right? The air we breathe in our individualized culture is this dominating message of I do me, you do you. Okay? You do whatever you want, you believe whatever you want, just don't let it intercede with me. I'm going to believe my own thing, I do my own thing. Individualized, privatized, everything is the name of the game today. And to even begin to understand the idea of praying together, we have to recapture this foundational reality that the gospel message, contrary to maybe what a lot of us have been told in our growing up in the church or these youth retreats, the gospel message is not that God has saved you to have a personal relationship with him. Was that not literally the ethos of what, we, what a lot of us were told growing up, right? We're sitting there at a retreat, and the preacher says, you're a sinner. There's a personal Savior. He came to personally save you, hung up on the cross, thought of you. And that's the moment we're like, oh, yeah, Jesus thought of me. And then you get saved, and now you get to have this privatized personal relationship with God. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not less than that, but that is such an incomplete gospel message. And I'm surprised how many people are shocked when I tell them that. They're like, what do you mean that's not the gospel? The gospel is not that God has just saved you. He saved you and others into union with the body of Christ. You're saved into a community. You are connected now by virtue of being a Christian to one another and united by Christ as fellow believers. Whether you like it or not, whether you feel it or not, that is a biblical theological truth. And one of the most explicit expressions of that reality that we see throughout the New Testament is when the church prays together. When the church prays together. Let me prove it to you. Jesus himself, obviously he prayed. When he taught on prayer, out of the 37 times that Jesus mentions prayer, 33 of them are addressed to a plural audience. So when he says, you should pray this way, You ought to come to the Lord before this way. If you translate it, he's not talking about you individual. He's saying you guys, you the believers, you the body of Christ. In other words, Jesus' instruction on prayer, 33 out of 37 times, heavily leaned towards that praying is praying with others, not on your own. The clearest example is the Lord's prayer. The one clear template example that we're given, our Father, give us this day. Our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. It doesn't get any clearer than that. And not only that, how do we know that Jesus cared so much that the church does this? All the gospel writers based off the Old Testament, they say Jesus himself explained in Matthew 21, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He says, one descriptor that I want my house, the temple, the church to be described as, is it is a place that is permeated with prayer. And so that's why, that's why he flipped tables. I don't know if you guys remember. He's like, what happened? What's well, supposed to be a place that people are praying is turned into this kind of business and what is going on here? And if that's really the case in its most loosest form, he would flip lots of tables at lots of churches today. Not only Jesus, but the apostles must have heard that message loud and clear because in the early church, they regularly gathered to pray for everything. Let me prove it to you. Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. It wasn't just the leaders, but it was countercultural because now the women were included. Everybody was included. Brothers were included. They all did this constantly. And they devoted themselves to this, the apostles. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now you might be wondering, well, what did they pray for? What was the context of their prayer? Let me just shoot it out there. Next slide. First, when they had a situation where they needed to choose deacons and servants of the church because the widows were being neglected. They didn't just say let's bring the seven most servant-like people. They prayed and laid hands on the seven that God through prayer and the spirit raised up for them. When Peter was in prison, they didn't go to the legal courts. They didn't see how can we get this guy out. It says in Acts 12.5, they prayed for him. And when he escaped, he found believers not strategizing together. But text will tell us, Peter found that many were gathered together and were praying for him. When Barnabas and Paul are sent out on their first missionary journey, it says in Acts 13.3, it was after fasting and praying. When they appointed elders, now let me let you know, our church is going through eldership process right now, and I have every right to ask this question. How many members, if you're a member here, prayed for the elders? If you're not praying for the eldership, who's praying for it? They appointed elders in Acts 14:23. It was with much fasting and praying. When Paul gave an emotional goodbye to the Ephesian elders who he needed to leave because he's on a missionary journey and this was a church he loved, Acts 20.36 says that he needed to say bye, he knelt down and prayed with them all. In other words, even a brief survey shows us corporate prayer for the early church was not an occasional gathering. It was not just a way to start and end the meeting. It was not the transition between praise and preaching. It was absolutely central and vital to the practice and DNA of the church. Now, this wasn't just the early church. If you track throughout church history, almost every instance and starting point of legitimate revival and awakening in the church is always married to a devotion to corporate prayer. One clear example of this, the Great Awakening, which you might have heard of in your history classes. Many would argue this literally changed the landscape of evangelical Christianity in America. It took place in the 1700s. One of the key figures of that revival, a man named Jonathan Edwards pretty famous guy in church history when asked to characterize the nature of the awakening he just said extraordinary prayer and i love this quote from him he writes or he he quotes prayer doesn't bring the awakening prayer is the awakening So Jesus, the early church, church history, all point to the single reality, corporate prayer, it is crucial to the Spirit's work, the Spirit's movement, the Spirit's power within the church. And if this is true, which I think I made the case for, here's a diagnostic question for all of us to consider. If our church, Grace Hill, neglects or minimizes the practice of meaningfully praying together, how could the body possibly be strong? How can the Spirit possibly convict us of our sin corporately, which is one of the main purposes of corporate prayer in the Old Testament? How can it challenge and and fight our apathy, which a lot of us wrestle with? How can it redirect our collective passion towards Christ, which is our mission, if we do not regularly pray together? I know that was a little more heady, so let's make it a little more tangible. Right now, one of the main arenas that our church prays with each other is during our members' meetings. Okay? Not all of you are members, but just to let you know our church believes in something called membership, where you don't just attend the church, but you're part of the church. We meet about every other month where we'll go over various agenda items, talk about church matters, but always at the end, we end with what we call a member care portion. And during that portion, we'll have people come up, share various prayer requests, struggles, situations, and we corporately lift them up as a church together. And without fail, almost every time I ask people, they always say, that's the highlight of the meeting. To me me and Tom's discouragement sometimes. We're like, oh, we planned this beautiful agenda. They don't remember anything. But amen to that because they're saying something happens where when members share real-time prayer requests and get vulnerable and members gather corporately around them and pray for them, they say it always hits different. Whenever a new member joins, they always share how that's always the most surprising to them. And this is not because their previous churches didn't pray. What they'll usually say is like, yeah, our churches had prayer and they'll pray, but they would always say like very generic prayer requests like, let's pray for those who are hurting. Or let's pray for those who are struggling. Can I tell you this? Have you ever been moved and motivated to pray by arbitrary or generic prayer requests? Like pray for the faceless hurting. Pray arbitrarily that God is just glorified. Through who? In what? I don't know, just just glorified. Let's just pray that we become passionate. For what? In what? I don't know, just passion. Or here's one, pray for the lost. Who's lost? I'm sure there's lost out there. Just pray for them. I mean, sure, those are good things, but they are so distant and so detached from something or someone tangible that I've rarely seen anyone get motivated to actually pray for these generic topics. And so what they're saying about our church how it's different is we actually have real members go up and they show current real-time prayer requests with the church. And it's not just general, oh, just keep us in your prayers. It's more like, hey, this past week we went to the ER for our baby. We're not sure what's going to happen. Can you keep us in prayer? We'll keep you posted. Really ask that God will intervene because I'm not sure what's going to happen. Name and face, real-time situation. Someone goes, hey, I lost a loved one this past month. I feel like it's my role to really help my family grieve, but I I myself, I don't know when I'm going to have to be able to grieve. Can you help me to process that well? Can you pray for me? Name, face. Or what about this difficult situation? Unanswered prayers. There's a sister that we've been praying for And her situation, she she was vulnerable. She explained it didn't turn out how we had hoped and prayed for. What do you do with those situations, right? It's always nice when you have the Instagram worthy. Oh, and God delivered, and praise God. Didn't turn out how we had hoped and prayed for. You see, results-oriented people like us here in the West, we'll see that as a failure. Point A to point B. We pray B should happen. B didn't happen. Why did we pray? What a failure. But we've been hearing this whole series. Do you believe, as the Bible attests to, God hears and God answers the prayers of his people. So could it be that it might not have panned out how you had hoped. But at the very least, could the purpose have been that the answer was you praying for them. To stir your love and care and heart to be there to walk with them, to journey with them so that when it doesn't pan out on a horizontal level, there's a vertical union together as the bond you have in Christ with them that you're not alone. I feel what you feel. I'm there with you. Is the better alternative, therefore, to not pray because it didn't happen? I don't think so. So what it can do, if I can put it into words, corporate prayer, what it does is it wakes people up to concerns outside of themselves. It draws us to want to love and care for other members. And I think the reason this is the case is because of what I heard one pastor says. He says, if the church is the body of Christ, praying together serves as the connective tissue that spiritually bonds us together. He writes this, and I quote, gathered prayer can bind you together. You might think of these prayer times as the furnace room of the church. Heat and warmth radiate out when God's people gather together to pray I've seen firsthand how this shared dependence on God transforms the ethos and culture of churches. Now, there's so much that can be said about the nature and practice of corporate prayer. There's different elements and practice of it. Some of it is even in our Sunday worship. I don't have time for that. But I wanted to at least plant the seed in all of our hearts that we do not want to be a church that just happens to pray here and there. But we want to be a praying church. Because we believe that's what the church is called to be. And that's when the church is firing on all cylinders. If you didn't know, our church actually, uh, we have a prayer team. So we like to really not just preach on it. We want to practice it. We want to make sure there's something that's actually going to be done. There's a group of few members who have been meeting, reading through material, meeting with Pastor Tom. Praying together about how they can help our church practice this and cultivate a culture of praying together in our church. Not only that... As was announced, we're hoping to have prayer gatherings to kickstart this once a month. And just know, when the time comes, for myself included, there will be every reason in the world why you will not want to go. I've never seen tiredness spike up more than when there's about to be a prayer meeting. Say, oh yeah, let's hang out, oh my God, prayer meeting. Oh my God, I'm so tired. It just happens, you know, that's satanic activity, right? I say that kind of jokingly, but it just literally always happens, right? That's going to happen, which is why Acts 2.42 says, oh, they didn't just happen to pray. They devoted themselves to it. You know what you have to devote to something? Because it requires commitment, consistency, sacrifice. You have to be taken seriously if you really wanted to take root in the church. And how does a church become a culture of prayer when its members pray? Regularly, consistently, in a devoted way. Now, you might be asking, okay, well, what, what, is, what, what if I don't go? What do I miss out on? I want to flip the angle and say it's not so much about guilt-tripping you. It's you, you miss out on the life of the church. You miss out on the work of God. You miss out on how God is answering prayers and bringing about the connecting of the body of Christ. And so all that is to say corporate praying, praying with one another, it's not easy, especially in our context. But it's absolutely essential to the health and vitality of the church. Now what do we actually do when we are praying with one another? Which leads to number two, intercessory prayer, praying for one another. Now to start, let me clarify, intercessory prayer is a fancy way to basically describe the common practice of praying for and on behalf of somebody else. And I'm sure many of us are familiar with the idea of praying for someone else, especially if you grew up in the church. Right? The idea of like, hey, let's share prayer requests or let's pray for each other. It's such a common religious practice that there I say, and I find this even in my own life, it's become mindless. How do you know if praying for each other has become mindless? How many of you have heard or you yourself loosely throw around the phrase, oh man, I'll pray for you, with actually no intention or practice of actually praying for them? Do you realize how weird that is? Hey, I'll pray for you. And then the second you leave that conversation, you don't even think about it again. How many of you guys, after you told someone they shared something, oh man, I'll pray for you, and you've not done it? How many of you share your prayer requests? With no actual faith and belief that either the person will actually pray for you or that their prayers actually mean anything. That you'd much rather have them give you five bucks than pray for you because that has more value to you. Obviously, if that's the faithless way we approach praying, of course prayers are not powerful because prayer is fueled off of faith. I'm guilty of falling, this, falling into this at times too. So I'm going to try to recapture the practice and beauty of intercessory prayer for those of us either who have forgotten or have never been told what a beautiful, powerful gift praying for others actually is. So to start the message, we read this somewhat obscure verse from Ezekiel. Okay? Now let me give you context as to why I had us read that verse and how it's related to intercessory prayer. Ezekiel 22, like a lot of the prophets, it's in a stage where God's people, Israel, they had... Rebelled; They had turned away and wandered off. And so God is saying, I'm going to bring judgment and wrath and I'm going to pour it out on their wickedness and rebellion. Time and time again, I've warned them. They have not repented. They have not listened. They've become a murderous, idolatrous, unjust, unrighteous nation. But before he pours out judgment, in verse 30, we see God say something very interesting. Okay, Look at verse 30. After describing all the ways Israel had rebelled and turned away, he says... I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Let me give a picture of what's happening here. Jerusalem had walls up to protect itself, it was its defenses. So imagine there's walls up, but there's a portion or a breach in the wall that is broken. And so what does that mean? You're vulnerable to attack. People can come in through that. So what do you need to do to shore that up and defend? You gotta fill it up. Somebody needs to stand in the gap so that the wall is no longer breached. And in the same way God is saying, my judgment's gonna go through the wall and breach through If even one person in the entire nation of Israel had the heart to intercede, stand in the gap, and make a case for my people, I would relent from judgment. Not even one. And they get judged. So the idea and picture is there is a gap between sinful Israel, holy God, and God is saying, is there not even one person who has a heart to get outside themselves and to stand in the gap and intercede on behalf? And the implication is powerful. God literally says, I would have withheld my judgment. Now, I share this because it is a loose but vivid picture of what it means to be an intercessor as you pray on behalf of someone else. We see other examples of this in the Old Testament, actually, where God literally relents. One example is, which we're going to read in Exodus, Israel, after being delivered from Egypt... They turn away right away. And one of the famous examples of that is they worship the golden calf, right? They fall right back into idolatry, even though God has shown them deliverance and grace. And so God tells Moses, step aside, Moses. I'm done with these stiff-necked people. I'm going to judge them. I'm going to consume them. But here's what Moses does. He stands in the gap between God and the idolatrous Israel. And he intercedes on behalf in Exodus 32. Here's it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out? Remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants, and this promise that you've made. And the key thing is, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken to bring on his people. Moses was an intercessor, and he interceded on behalf of the sinful Israel before God, and God listened to the intercession, and he actually relented. There's more examples of that. So with that picture in mind, let me give a more descriptive definition then, colored in, of what it means to be an intercessor. An intercessor is, on this slide, a person who intervenes, petitions, or begs God on behalf of another by and through prayer. Now here's the million-dollar question. Who is called to be an intercessor? Everyone who calls himself a Christian. There's no special intercessory gift. We are all called to do this. First Timothy 2.1. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, it should be on this slide, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. And the text we read, talking to all believers, and I pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. In other words, we are all called to be intercessors for one another. This is a powerful gift we are given to love others. And in Ephesians, Paul makes it clear this is not just in prayer gatherings, this is not just a formal thing. He says all the time, for any occasion, for any request, for any situation, and keep on doing this. Now, let me bring it home a little bit. Do you realize what a powerful gift and tool of love this is? Imagine you have a tool belt that you have, and when someone asks you for something or they're going through something, you have your tool belt that you kind of turn to. And a lot of us, we have very similar tools. So someone says, I'm struggling or they share a burden with you. One of the most common tools, I call it the screwdriver of helping someone, is we give them advice, right? So someone says, I'm having a relational issue or uh, should I date that guy or I'm wrestling with this decision. It's not the first tool a lot of us turn to, our own wisdom, right? We're so prideful. Like, well, I've been there. I know what that's like. Let me tell you. And you give them advice. Not a bad tool. It's a common tool, right? We give advice. A second tool a lot of us give is this general sense of support. So if someone's going through a tough time, one of the things we'll do at our church is let's set up a meal train so they don't have to think about food. Okay, so We're going to door dash you food. We're going to bring you over food. We're going to text you and let you know we got your back. We're going to Venmo you five bucks and say grab yourself a boba or tasty. Actually, that's not even true. It's like $8 now, so you got to Venmo $8. If you Venmo $5 for a boba, that is wrong, okay? You're making them pay for it. So do at least $8. Or to cheer them up, you'll say, hey, let's get your mind off of it. Let's go, let's go play around the golf or something. And that's under the general tool of support. I want to make you feel supported. Or a deeper tool that I love to turn to sometimes is empathy and condolences. Like if someone experiences a tragedy or loss, we say, hey, I offer condolences. I want to be sad for and with you. Now, don't get me wrong. Those tools are all great. They're all useful. But you also do not even have to be a Christian to access those tools. I would argue some non-Christians do it far better than Christians do. But intercessory prayer is a unique powerful gift and tool of love that has been gifted to us by the power of the spirit to legitimately have access to God himself and to stand in the gap between whoever or whatever situation is burdening them or you and standing and pleading before God on their behalf. Let me give you an example, personally, of what that looks like. I mentioned a few weeks ago in a sermon that I preached. I have an uncle who I love dearly. He was struggling with uh, advanced Parkinson's, and without getting into too much detail, my dad regularly updates me because I'm curious on his condition. He says, like, yeah, it's the same or worse. It's deteriorating. A couple times, I actually talk to my uncle over the phone, and obviously, he tries to sound strong. I feel so burdened every time. How can you not? I feel so burdened. I picture what he might be going through. He's in Korea. Now, on a human level, I feel so helpless because what can I possibly do to help him, what? Send him money? Tell him, like, oh, you know, I express my empathy? I mean, sure, those things are good, but what I do have, and I've been trying to practice more, is the gift through Christ and the Spirit, I can not only offer my horizontal empathy, but I can vertically intercede on behalf of my uncle and stand in the gap between his Parkinson's and an external worldly crummy situation and God Almighty who could heal him if he wanted to and for whatever good purposes he's not in the moment and I could beg and plead before God on his behalf and say, God, I'm so burdened because of what my uncle is going through and if you ain't going to heal him, even though you can, can you do what you say you're going to do in your word, which is bring him supernatural internal comfort, peace, strength, security to get to, the, get to heaven in one piece because you said you'll do that. And you gave me the right to ask you on his behalf i share the example because there's going to be many more situations like this where our horizontal human tools will fall short. Advice can help a job search. It cannot help the loss of a loved one. Support can provide comfort, but it can't secure internal peace. And empathy is helpful, but it can't heal a broken heart. I wrote an article about a family that was experienced tragedy and loss. And their conclusion was, what what does somebody do without a church family? (laughs) Who they could turn to. Who can pray for them, walk with them, journey with them. What do they do without a church family? Which is why we believe attending a church is great. But we believe your end goal should always be to be part of a church. To be connected to a church who knows you, who knows what you're going through. Because that's where the lifeblood of being a community really steps in. And I share this all the time. I really believe our church, Grace Hill, is entering a season and is not going to slow down where people are going to go through, if they are not already going through, some really difficult stuff. We didn't plan it this way. January 2024 alone, and if you remember, some of you know this. I really think God sovereignly awakened this vision in our hearts to talk about prayer because if we didn't have access to this tool, some of the stuff our members are going through, we would be powerless Relational losses, miscarriages, family strife, faith struggles, marital conflict, parental struggles you name it, all across the board, and it's only going to increase. So, what are we going to do? Just keep giving them our advice? Keep sending them boba? Those things are great, but you're scratching the surface of what we can really be doing for each other as the body of Christ. And I share this all the time. What God longs for is to see his people who are not only willing to hear each other's burdens, but to now stand in the gap between that person and their burden. Be it an unbelieving family member. Hey, my friend has an unbelieving family member, God, that they've been praying for 10 years. There seems to be no activity. So here I am as an intercessor. Can you do something about that? Because you say you care about the lost. Do something about that, God. I'm joining them. I'm bringing into intercession because that's what you said to do. And when you do that, what you're doing is you're not only doing intercession, you're making a spiritual investment and putting skin in the game where now you care about them. I shared recently a member shared about the whole ER visit. I've never seen our church more curious about what's going on in the life of someone. You know why? Because they prayed for them. So they message like, hey, you know that brother and sister that shared, like what's going on? Anything we could be doing? Is there an update? And I'm curious why. It's like, oh, because we've been praying for them. Prayer brings investment. Investment brings prayer. And that's how the church connects. Now here's the key question. Why does God care so much, though, that people stand in the gap? Why does he care so much that we intercede on behalf of another? And why does it please him of all things when he sees it happening? Here's why. Christians sitting here today, how do you even have access to God in the first place? Do you ever think about that? Because that's what intercession is. You are accessing the throne room of Almighty God, and you're pleading and talking to him as if you can do that. How can you do that? You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We are all wicked. Just yesterday, we probably rebelled in our thoughts, duties, and actions. So how do we have a right to even come before God and plead on behalf of anyone when we're still stuck struggling in our sin and rebellion? And here's the key. Who stood in the gap between your sin, our sin, and God's holiness? Who interceded on our behalf? Who, when God looked upon us and said, there is a wicked gap here, is there anyone that could fill it? Who was the one person who was not only qualified, but for the joy set before him, willing to stand in that gap? to be our intercessor it was God's own son Jesus Christ who made makes and will forever make intercession for us to approach God not as judge but as the lord's prayer says which kickstarts any ability to pray in the first place our father therefore Romans 8:34 beautiful verse should be on the screen who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Trivia question, where is Jesus now? Ascended, raised, resurrected, glorified, sitting at the right hand of the Father, praying for you. Hebrews 7.25, therefore he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You know what that means? Jesus, for all eternity, after accomplishing what he did at the cross, resurrected. And in that gap between your wickedness, which is always going to be there, and God himself said, I got to plant myself here Forever. And I choose to do that and I will forever intercede and forever plead for and forever stand on behalf of my people before you, holy God, so that in me and through me, they can do that for all eternity as well. So he is our perfect intercessor and he always lives to do that for you and me. And that's why it pleases God so much because when we intercede for one another, it shows that we're starting to get the gospel and starting to be free from our selfishness and self-absorption, which is plaguing the world and making everyone more disconnected and unloving than ever before. And we're starting to be more like Christ because when you really love someone, you intercede for them. Love drives intercession. Now just to make it clear, this is a present reality. It's not like Jesus once interceded for you. He is forever and ever right now, unceasingly, praying for you. And if that's not enough, he says, when I leave, I want to make that sure. So in Romans 8, he also said, I'm going to send the Spirit. And you know what the Spirit does? You ever had a situation where you or someone you know are going through something so heartbreaking, you have no words? God says, you know what the Spirit's going to do? He's going to make those words for you with groanings that are too deep for even words themselves, and he's going to intercede on your behalf. And some of you guys need to know that assurance. You cannot even put into prayers what you're going through, and the Spirit says, you don't have to. I know, I search even deeper than you and you know, and I intercede on your behalf. Jesus intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes for us in real time, and it is because of that reality, that intercession has been made for us, that we are now interceding for each other. And my hope is that we see this as a precious opportunity and gift. Not only when we are asked by someone to pray for them, but do you see it as a gift to the church when you also, even though it takes a little vulnerability, ask the church to pray for you? I've never once seen a situation where, whether it's the asker or the asked, that both do not leave feeling more spiritually encouraged. This is not a top-down thing where like, okay, if I'm the one praying for you, I'm kind of serving you. No, we're serving the body of Christ in our asking and our being asked. And this culture of praying for one another in a regular and meaningful way, this is the tried and true method on how the Spirit binds the church together, brings about repentance and confession, and moves the church forward in power and mission so that you're not just on cruise control. The church in Acts was not on cruise control. There was acceleration. There was stopping. There was hard turns. There was the movement. That's how the spirit moves and works. A cruise control church is not a praying church. I was so blessed recently again to see our church rally around this couple that I was mentioning. But again, for those of you guys who prayer has not really worked out for you in that way. I know there's some of you here. Like it's hard to praise. It's hard to rejoice. And when you hear stuff like this, like, well, easier said than done for those who have worked out for. Can I let you know at the very least, Jesus is praying for you. The spirit is interceding for you. And whenever God grants you the privilege or opportunity to share, hopefully we will pray for you. So practical application as we close. It's quite simple. Prioritize praying with and for the church. Now a quick word actually for those of you that are not part of our church or are not Christian. You may never have seen prayer or this idea of prayer in that way. But can I encourage you, kinda like what's said through that article, where 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 do you turn? Where can you go? The gospel is an invitation to have somewhere and someone to go to. Prior to praying with and for the church, one of the fondest memories I have our church when it comes to prayer corporately was actually how we got this building. So some of you guys might know, some of you guys were there, others of you are new, so you don't know. We weren't always at Bonaparte High School. We moved here in 2019. We were at my former church actually, which was a Korean church we were kind of using and, and we spent a number of years there. And so we prayed, what we said is like, hey, this is a big transition. Let's really call the church together and pray. So we prayed together for 10 weeks straight. It was one of the sweetest times in my recent memory of our church coming together. A lot of good came from that fellowship or whatever. But some of you might be wondering, like, what was the actual point and power of that prayer? Little did you know, the, the, a number of dominoes that needed to fall for us to get this space, there were a lot. It was not, we're not, so number one, we have members in LA and Irvine. So that's pretty a far gap. So we're like, man, if we move here, we lose LA. If we move here, let's, let's, we're going to lose Irvine. So what are we going to do? And the middle ground was here. <laughs> 91 and five. We're like, oh my gosh, this is such a great location. Here's the problem though. There was another group that was meeting here so we couldn't rent it. So we just like, oh, okay, we scoured the earth. By earth, I mean like Orange County, but we scoured the earth. We're like, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Always keeping our eyes at Buena Park High School. And then lo and behold, the time we need to secure a location, we looked at it again, and the group had actually moved out. You know why? Because Buena Park, for whatever reason, right at the time we were going to move, was doing renovations on the theater. And the renovations made it so they had to raise the rent right out to the budget of that previous group. So it was vacant. So we're like, oh my God, let's get it. Now here's the thing. Some of you guys who are more skeptical might be like, what a coincidence. And if we had not been praying, I might agree with you. We got lucky. What a coincidence. But we had been praying. So you know what I believe? I believe it was prayer induced coincidence. And we'll never know. But as a person of faith, I choose to believe there's power in prayer. I bring that up because there are actually a couple corporate prayer topics we really need prayer for. One of them is very similar it's the growth of our church. Today might not be indicative, but if you've come to our church even a month or two, you know we're starting to fill this space out. And right now, that's one of the things we're thinking about. Like God seems to be growing our church. Praise God for that. That's a sign of life. We're thankful for that. But what are we going to do? How are we going to move forward? And as someone who's part of a team that's overseeing that, it's the first time in a long time, I literally feel like I have no idea what to do. Do we order like two services? Do we find a bigger building? How can you even do that? Do we make our welcoming really sucky so nobody sticks around? Right? Like I've thought about all options. Right? All options. Do we make an ever? I always joke like, should we make a bridge group that the bridge is forever (laughs) so you never actually get connected? Like bridge group, bridge group, bridge group. I I, I joke, but I'm really saying like, what do we do? And you know what? I was so we gotta pray. We have to pray. If this is God's church and God is bringing growth to his church, would not God also have a means to steward that growth well? And so obviously on a horizontal, we do our best to prepare and plan and strategize. But all of that needs to be marinated in prayer, not just from the pastors, not just from leaders, but the whole body of Christ. So that's one of them. Here's another one that Paul himself said. Eldership. Famous pastor, Pastor Charles Spurgeon, he was once asked, What is the secret to your great success? Because he was a well known minister. His impact and legacy goes even to today. And he replied simply to the, you know, what is his success from? He says, quote, My people pray for me. That's it. What assurance and strength would come from our elders and to be elders if we can confidently say, at the very least, we know our people. Pray for us. Now, I'm not saying that our people do or don't, but I hope that we do. So let's just say informal prayer gatherings or even the Lent fasting, there's opportunities on an organized sense to do that. But does that mean what it means to be a praying church? That you go to prayer gatherings and you do these things? Well, yes and no, which is why I want to close with this. Not only in a corporate sense, but to become a culture where the church is not just happens to pray, but is a praying church. It's not gauged by programs or formal gatherings, but in the culture of prayer that you just feel and see and experience throughout your life at that church. Perfect example of this. Uh, a couple of weeks ago... Um, I, after worship, I went out and then I was talking to one of the sisters and we just happened to run into each other. She was sharing kind of like what, was, what, the, what she was going through, how it hasn't been the easiest and I know kind of general their situation. And then her husband came and then he was sharing too. And my heart broke. And I did my classic Christian thing, right? I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll pray for you guys. And in my heart, I was like, I'm not gonna pray for that. I hate to put it that way, but it's not right. Like, hey, I'll be, I'll be praying for you. Isn't that like our exit out of a conversation if you're a Christian? It's almost like, all right, see ya. So I was like, you know what? Let me pray for you guys right now. So I did that. I said, I'll pray for you. We prayed together. In the corner of my eye, I saw another sister holding her pretty young baby. She was talking to another sister who was going through a situation that I was aware of. And to my surprise, she was praying for her right then and there. Amidst of the fellowship, amidst the people grabbing coffee, they were just praying for each other. And I thought, this must be what a praying church is. You pray right then and there. So can I challenge you, unless you are legitimately the person who has a notepad and you bring out your phone and say, can you tell me your prayer requests? Uh, I was joking with someone for our community groups, you know the time when you go around doing prayer requests? Unless somebody's writing those things down, I'm always surprised at how good people's memories are of people's prayer requests. It's like 10 people share their prayer requests and like, we're going to pray for each other and I'm like, wow, you guys remember those prayer requests? So either two things are happening, you have impeccable memory or you're just sleeping. <laughs> Let's just be honest. It's just a way to formally close the meeting. Okay, let's close in prayer. Okay, almost better just be like, and today to close, we're just gonna close. We're done, right? Like let's just be honest. That's how much religiosity and mindlessness and infiltrated the prayerful culture of a church. And so all that is to say, unless you are someone who's good at that, and there are people that are, I'm not one of them. I would encourage you and push you if you feel any inclination, just pray with them right then and there. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be super powerfully passionate. It could be a 30 second thing of God. You know what this is going through and I intercede and I'll pray for them. Can you just be with them this week? That's it. So that's one thing to consider and ask for. There's a lot more things that can be said and done, but I'm gonna close in prayer so that we can have a time to respond in light of this. So let's pray together.